This is The Guardian. Hello there, Jonathan Friedland here, columnist for The Guardian and host of our Politics Weekly America podcast. We wanted to share an episode from our sister podcast, Today in Focus, which marks the life and death of Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning monarch in British history, who has died at the age of 96. Polly, what would you say is the story of Queen Elizabeth II? Elizabeth II is the story of nearly a century, a story of Britain's decline, losing an empire, not finding another role, uncertain world in which she is the only figure of constant stability through all of the changes. And for that reason, uh, hugely praised and admired. Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning monarch in British history, has died. Prince Charles is now king. Coming to the throne at the age of 25, the Queen steered the monarchy through decades of turbulent change. Appointing prime ministers from Winston Churchill to, a few days ago, Liz Truss. And The Guardian's Polly Toynbee has witnessed it all. As a nation mourns and leaders worldwide pay their respects, we consider an extraordinary life. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, with the Queen's passing, what's next for the monarchy and for Britain? memory of Queen Elizabeth II? I was six. I was taken to the mall to stand amongst the crowds, try and squeeze to the front to watch the coronation. And then somebody suddenly invited us inside to some offices upstairs. And there was a television there. The Duke of Norfolk follows Her Majesty into the annex. We'll wait there a while, but we will go on ahead of Her Majesty into the Abbey. I'd never seen a television before, like a lot of people in, in Britain. So seeing the television was almost exciting as seeing the procession go by in the flesh. You were a little girl and, as you said, you were in the middle of this incredible occasion. Do you remember what you were thinking at the time or what you thought of the Queen? Little girls think about queens and princesses rather too much, I'm afraid, and she seemed dazzling. And so, as her mother and her sister and the other members of the royal family watched her pass, Her Majesty now moves in her procession down the length of this abbey, moves in her beautiful, shimmering gown, and she wears, as we see her now, the imperial state crown. The spectacle of a crown and a gold coach, uh, absolutely transfixing for young children who are imbued with the idea of, of sovereigns, of monarchy, of royalty, of power. 
But it was the gold coach. I always wanted a little miniature, one of those gold coaches. So, to that stirring music, majesty, splendor and beauty pass from our sight as the queen goes in her lovely robe out of the nave of the abbey. History has been written and sung here today. In this Elizabeth was never supposed to be the one sitting in the gold coach, wearing the crown, on that unseasonably cold, drizzly June day in 1953. She wasn't born for it. She was actually third in line. But then, her uncle, Edward VIII, abdicated. A few hours ago, I discharged my last duty as king and emperor. And from that moment, at the age of 10, Elizabeth knew that one day she would be queen. For the obedient, sensible princess, who neatly lined up her toy ponies outside the nursery door each night, and who was being homeschooled for an aristocratic life as a minor royal, it was a dramatic turn of events. But, nevertheless, that's when her duty began. As she grew up, the emphasis was on service and duty. For example, she underwent the training of a sea ranger. Watch! Shut! Watch is made for inspection. By the age of 14, she was speaking directly to her future subjects over crackly wartime radio broadcasts. When peace comes, remember, it will be for us, the children of today, to make the world of tomorrow a better and happier place. My sister is by my side, and we are both going to say goodnight to you. Come on, Margaret. Good night, children. Good night, and good luck to you all. At 21, she married Prince Philip. Newspapers find their boldest headlines as, outside the palace, all-night crowds are rewarded by the bulletin announcing that Her Royal Highness and her son are both doing well. And soon after, they had Charles, the first of their four children. In 1952, Elizabeth and Philip were touring Kenya when she got the news that her father, King George VI, had died much younger than anyone had expected. At the tower, the salute is fired by the Honourable Artillery Company. One reign has ended, a reign begins. So at the age of 25, Princess Elizabeth became Queen Elizabeth II. Her tour of the Commonwealth cancelled. The princess we knew as a girl and watched in the even growth of her stature comes back to meet her ministers as Queen over the great lands that for 15 years acknowledged her father as head. In a way, I didn't have an apprenticeship. My father died much too young, and so it was all a very sudden kind of taking on and making the best job you can. It's a question of maturing into something that one's got used to doing and accepting the fact that here you are and and it's your fate. Because I think continuity is very important. It is a, a job for life. Elizabeth II was now the head of the monarchy, an institution which, at that time, was still at the center of British life. She was adored. 
A third of her subjects believed her to have been chosen directly by God. And Britain itself was still presiding over a vast global empire. But not for long. At the moment of the Queen's coronation, the monarchy was the focal point for a country that still really saw itself as an empire. And the first thing she did was to let the colonies go. Uh, there was no alternative. Attending independence celebrations as one after another peeled away. Nigeria, Ghana, Jamaica, Sudan, country after country that we thought we owned, she suddenly didn't own any longer. Jamaica was the happiest island in all the Caribbean. Kingston was in holiday mood, and the whole population hung out the flags and metaphorically threw its hat in the air. They rejoiced, not that they were parting from Britain, they are firm adherents of the crown, but because Jamaica stood on the threshold of independence. And then it rained. A tropical downpour, as inappropriate as our own deluge on bank holiday. In that period of British decline, the Queen was a kind of cover Everybody could forget that we were declining for as long as we had this glorious monarchy, for as long as we had this commonwealth where she could seem to be still in charge of a shadow empire. She gave everybody the illusion of uh, British power and strength in the world. And as long as she remained queen, people could hold on to the fantasy that nothing very much had changed since the day she was crowned. But of course, everything had changed. As Britain struggled to come to terms with its new standing overseas, domestically, the nation hurtled through times of astonishing societal transformation. The relative wealth and social mobility of the 1950s and 1960s. But we have built more than 300,000 houses, new houses, in 1953. The rise of youth culture. Women's liberation, LGBT rights, promoting homosexuality, the fight for racial equality. We've complained to judges about judges and nothing's been done. Now it's time to do something ourselves. The turmoil of the 1970s and 80s. For the whole labor and trade union movement, come and join us and fight. I'll stand up for something, not just for the miners, for everybody. And you won't let him in your house? Um, as long as I'm alive, I'll never get in my house. Never, never again. Gen will be sold off at the highest price. Is he against selling it off at the highest price? Deindustrialization, privatization, immigration, multiculturalism, the decline of the church in national life. All the while, the Queen remained a constant. Like being the queen. Yeah. It's a very busy life. Yeah. Um, but it How big is your palace? My palace is quite large. Has very long corridors to walk down it. Brightly coloured coat, brimmed hat and handbag, inscrutable smile. And never giving much away. The monarchy was always above public mood. It was always in a realm of its own. It paid very little attention to uh, popular opinion. Uh, it stayed outside politics. The Queen's great success was through all of the changes of government and all of the uh, uh, turmoil that there often was. 
She managed to stay just above it and never to let anyone know. She was incredibly good at staying silent, of zipping her lip and saying nothing about what she thought. Otherwise, I think the monarchy might have collapsed through a lot of the left-right strife of the 70s and 80s. One of the many things that happened over the course of Queen Elizabeth's reign, as we've both said, was the fight for gender equality. And throughout that time, the Queen was one of the most high-profile women in the world. Polly, do you think that being the case, the fact that she was a woman, played a part in her story? The Queen's gender was very important. When she came to the throne, it allowed the fantasy that this was Elizabeth II, who was going to reprise the era of greatness of Elizabeth I, which was, of course, when the empire began to be set up and uh, Britain's trading piratical behaviour around the world was part of our national myth. So the new Elizabethan era was a great trope uh, at the time of her, her coronation. And I think the fact that she was a woman meant that people could somehow accept that she was not political because in those days, you know, women were not supposed to talk about politics much. Uh, and it, the idea that she was a wife and a mother uh, and a woman, I think, helped to keep the monarchy out of politics. And as well as being head of state, the Queen was also the head of her own family. And another thing we did see change over time was this diminishing sense of deference towards monarchy. Is that why cracks increasingly began to emerge in the family itself? One of the big changes, of course, was the arrival of Rupert Murdoch on the scene at the end of the 1960s. Mr Murdoch, IPC announced last July that uh, the Sun and its predecessor, the Herald, had lost £12 million in over eight years. How, in effect, would you change the newspaper and its format to make it pay? Well, we'll change it in, in several ways, but we're not going to disclose exactly what our plans are at the moment. But it'll be a straightforward, honest newspaper. There had been a kind of reverence in the British press, even on the left, towards the monarchy. He broke that. Right. He came from Australia. He thought the monarchy was rubbish. He thought, anyway, they sold newspapers. And he sent in reporters to report any kind of rumour or gossip. And I think that that did throw the whole question of the monarchy more into, uh, into daylight. And we began to hear whispers and stories. At Kennedy Airport, Britain's Princess Margaret and husband Lord Snowden enjoy a reunion following recent rumours that their seven-year-old marriage was less solid than the Rock of Gibraltar. His photography assignments in Japan and New York have kept them apart. One of the most fascinating aspects of the monarchy, and of course one of the most modern aspects of the monarchy, is that nearly all her children have got divorced, sister got divorced, uh, at a time when divorce was not that common. I mean, they were to some extent ahead of the game. The idea that the monarchy was a stable institution uh, has certainly not been true of her own family. And yet somehow she managed to rise above it and to look as if she didn't mind too much. I mean, sometimes she looked as if she was sucking lemons, but she put up with uh, her children's quite chaotic married and divorcing lives. That was modernising, because I think for a lot of families in the country went through the same thing. Uh, parents who didn't support divorce, found their children divorcing or indeed living together, not married. So that to some extent, the royal family has represented the social turmoil and change and progress in some ways, the freedom, new freedoms that the rest of the country enjoys. 
The Queen may have managed to rise above it most of the time, but very occasionally she did reveal herself to be really struggling. No more so than in 1992, her Annus Horribilis, as she called it. Margaret divorced, and Charles and Andrew announced the end of their marriages too. With uh, permission, Madam Speaker, I wish to inform the House that Buckingham Palace are at this moment issuing the following statement. It reads as follows. It is announced from Buckingham Palace that with regret, the Prince and Princess of Wales have decided to separate. This decision has been reached amicably and they will both continue to participate fully in the upbringing of their children. Deference by this point had disappeared. Newspapers were printing stories about the Queen's private wealth and questioning whether misbehaving royals deserved their taxpayer funding. And then the Queen had to watch, standing in the rain, crying, as part of Windsor Castle burned down. She gave a speech at the end of that year, appealing for understanding that was, for her, remarkably candid. 1992 is not a year on which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure. I sometimes wonder how future generations will judge the events of this tumultuous year. I dare say that history will take a slightly more moderate view than that of some contemporary commentators. But days later, John Major announced that the monarchy would be reformed, the Queen would pay income tax, and members of the extended royal family would no longer receive public funding. It was a dramatic low point, the mark of an irreversible shift in the relationship between subjects and sovereign. Then, five years later, things got lower still. Normal programming has been suspended, and we now join Martin Lewis in the news studio. This is BBC Television from London. Diana, Princess of Wales, has died after a car crash in Paris. The French government announced her death just before five o'clock this morning. Buckingham Palace confirmed the news shortly afterwards. Normal programmes have been suspended while we bring you the latest developments throughout the morning. After the shocking news of Diana's death, the Queen found herself caught in a rare moment of public unpopularity. The one time she got it badly wrong was after the death of Diana. The royal family utterly misunderstood the powerful emotions people felt in the country and powerful anger against the royal family that they felt had turned against Diana, had turned her out, had made her life impossible. And they fell silent. They did the wrong thing. It took Tony Blair to step forward, tell them what to do. Uh, that was a very important moment because I don't think any British Prime Minister at that point wanted to see the monarchy fall over. They didn't know what would replace it, what would happen next, what it would lead to. Uh, and he stabilised it by forcing them to face up to this emotional moment. And so, as you say, after a lot of pressure, not just from politicians, but also from the press, the Sun's headline was, Show us that you care. The Queen did eventually give a televised address to the nation the day before Diana's funeral. What I say to you now, as your Queen and as a grandmother, I say from my heart. First, I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh 
nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. I admired and respected her for her energy and commitment to others, and especially for her devotion to her two boys. Do you think we can learn anything about her from the way all of that unfolded? We never knew the Queen. Of course we didn't. We had to rely on fantasies of the Crown or Majesty magazine or the Sun, rumour and gossip. Uh, Each of us could think our own thoughts about what sort of person she was. She was a cipher for anybody's emotions, for anybody's wish, for anybody's idea of what a monarch should be. Keeping quiet was her great strength. The myth is that she was quite chilly, that she was a cold mother, that she was not warm, and uh, that she froze out Diana, that she froze out everybody, that she lived in an isolated zone where being monarch was really the whole of her life. We don't know if that's true. We have no idea. But it was quite useful in a way, this idea, rather like Elizabeth I, of a figurehead more than she was a human was perhaps necessary. Diana's death was perhaps the most devastating moment in the recent history of the monarchy. But it was by no means the last time the Queen would have to deal with family crises. When Harry and Meghan split away, the Queen and the palace didn't really seem to know how to respond. A little over an hour ago, a statement was released on behalf of the Queen. It was very light on detail. It said, The whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Harry, Meghan and Archie will always be much-loved family members. But worst of all, we're told, we don't know if it was true, that her favourite son was Andrew. And Andrew has been the disaster in the family all the way through. An American woman has filed a civil lawsuit in New York accusing Prince Andrew of sexual abuse. In a statement, Virginia Dufresne claims she was trafficked to the prince by the convicted paedophile Jeffrey Epstein when she was 17. The Duke of York has consistently denied the allegations. And there is the Queen, still in his company, not casting him out of the family. That's very damaging for the monarchy and uh, I think a serious misstep. Maybe it's a true emotion where her love for her son overcomes her caution about the dignity of the monarchy. We've talked about the way the Queen managed to stay out of a great deal of societal change and political turmoil throughout her reign. And Polly, you've argued that by doing this, she's preserved the status of the monarchy, maybe even saved it. But arguably, the worst of the turmoil was saved till last. In short succession, we had two hugely divisive referendums. The first, the Scottish independence referendum, was an existential question about Britain itself. And the second, Brexit, will probably shape the country for decades. Do you think she managed to continue to stay out of things? The mystery of the monarchy depends on never knowing what they think about the political events of the day. In Scotland, we got a little hint when David Cameron let loose that the Queen had purred 
when she heard the result that Scotland was not, for the time being, going to become independent. And one can believe that because the royal family have always passionately loved Balmoral and Scottishness. And I think Scotland going in her lifetime would have been a heartbreak for her. And the great drama of uh, the Brexit referendum, we were never allowed to know what she thought. The Sun on its front page claimed that the Queen backs Brexit. Nobody really knew. Of course, the Sun was rapidly Brexit and they would want to claim her. And uh, the Queen was in no position to confirm or deny it. Coming up, the Queen has been a constant in all of our lives. How will the nation process her passing? Polly, you've set out a portrait of a queen who was the head of two different institutions, the British state and the royal family, both of them having been through enormous changes in her lifetime and both, in some ways, gradually declining in stature, but also a queen who tried to provide some stability and cohesion for both her country and her family with differing degrees of success. So I just wanted to ask you, one at a time, how you think the death of the Queen might affect those two different institutions, beginning first with the monarchy? The support for the monarchy is certainly much, much weaker than it used to be. Only about 58% think that the monarchy is very important for the country. But there's no great move to change. We're not a country that goes in for change. We can't even get rid of the House of Lords. The idea that anybody will seriously question the monarchy seems still very remote. It may be that uh, King Charles will be less popular than she was. There were polls saying people would rather Prince William had taken over directly. But of course, the moment you open that door, the moment you allow people to say they can choose who's going to be monarch, well, why would you have a monarchy at all? And what about the country itself? Where does that go now? The Queen came to power with many, many colonies and then they fell away from her within her first decades on the throne. After the war, increasingly, it became clear that we were a very minor player within the shadow of of the Americans. She represented that change to some extent, But I think she also, uh, her existence meant the country never had to come to terms with quite how much had changed in that time. I think her passing might be a moment for reconsidering who we are, what we represent. There's no doubt that the Queen herself personally was hugely admired around the world. Just her, the fact that she was ancient and dignified gave Britain a certain status that it may not have now she's gone. From some of those really low points in the 1990s that we talked about, including the death of Princess Diana, over time we did see the personal popularity of the Queen gradually return. At the moment of her death, she was beloved by much of the country. And I'm wondering whether maybe part of it is that she showed more emotion towards the end of her life, or at least that the country connected with her emotionally in a way that perhaps it 
hadn't very much before. Something that sticks in my mind is that really sad picture of her sitting in the church, alone because of COVID, mourning the death of her lifelong husband, Prince Philip. Life, unto his divine mercy, the late most high, mighty and illustrious prince, Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Merioneth and Baron Greenwich. I also think back to that first lockdown when she spoke directly to the nation. We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. We've talked about what her passing means for the monarchy and for Britain as a country. But what do you think it means to people on an emotional level? The Queen represents a very, very long era for almost everybody in this country. We measure out our lives by the birth of her children, maybe the divorces of her children, her rival of grandchildren. Events in the royal family seem to reflect people's personal lives. Events in the country, which the Queen represents, seem to be markers not just changes of government, but the the major historic events of our time. The Queen was always there. I think with her passing, there really is a sense that a lot of people will have lost their connection with the history of their lifetime. It's a monumental moment. It's a passing of an era. We'll see outpourings of grief, but it won't just be grief for the passing of the Queen, but grief for all of us, the passing of time, the things we remember. It's a, a national grief that goes far beyond one person, but all of us remembering all of our lives. When I was 21, I pledged my life to the service of our people, and I asked for God's help to make good that vow. Although that vow was made in my salad days when I was green in judgment, I do not regret nor attract one word of it. That was Polly Toynbee. My thanks to her. You can read extensive coverage of the death of the Queen and what it means at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Joshua Kelly. Sound design is by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.